Hi, it's Jen. NPR is conducting its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. So please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. We really appreciate your help supporting NPR podcasts. Thanks. This is Jesse from Durham, North Carolina. Joyce, I'm calling from Tucson, Arizona. This is Panina. I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. Democrats need to start being for some radical changes to this country. Let me read this. Strongest year for economic growth since 1984. Unemployment in 3.6%. I think that a lot of people are delusional about how they thought that this presidency was going to go. If Democrats continue to hold this middle ground party line then we're not going to go anywhere and they're not going to bring out voters. And now I hear all of these Democrats and liberals saying it should be better, it should be better, but I think it's better than it was. That's only because it was really bad when Trump was president. Wages up, deficit down $1.3 trillion, the most in any year. So I think the media, and this includes NPR, unfortunately, how about sharing some positive information that's factual and that people need to know The Republican Party is widely expected to win back at least one chamber of Congress later this year. Democrats have a hill to climb. High inflation, record gas prices, and low poll numbers for the president are dragging down the party's chances of success. But is the ground starting to shift? Whether it's the gun debate or the possible end of Roe v. Wade, Democrats sense an opportunity to fight back. Can the party find a winning message for the midterms? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Fox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Struggling with work or any of life's roles can lead to a lack of motivation and detachment. Prioritize your mental health by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash 1A. We're discussing the Democratic Party and the midterms. Joining us is NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Claudia, it's always great to have you on. Good to be on. Thank you. Also with us is Michael Kazin. He's the author of What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. He's also a history professor at Georgetown University. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Claudia, first, this far out from November, how do things look for Democrats? I think they're holding, just as you mentioned, we are seeing that potential that Republicans could take over the House chamber, take control away from Democrats, because it is such a thin margin. And we're looking at a lot of districts where Republicans are holding the upper hand that could push them over that edge to take that majority. The Senate is still not as clear, but it's a possibility that Republicans could take control there as well. And where are Democrats most vulnerable right now? So some of the 
spots that they're looking at are some of these what we call so-called frontliner uh, members who are moderates, who are really closely tied to President Biden, who is battling these low approval ratings. And he's struggling to see those jump, whether he is saying he's working on baby formula or trying to address inflation. The voting public that will come out in November doesn't seem to be buying that. And there's also this historical pattern that when we have a party in majority in the White House, often voters will come out and go in the opposite direction when it comes to congressional races. Michael, what are you watching in the coming months that that might indicate a shift? Well, in midterm elections, it's all about enthusiasm. And 2018, uh, young voters came out in uh, historically high numbers. Uh, and right now, it doesn't look like it's going to be happening. And if young voters who are overwhelmingly Democratic, as opposed to older voters, uh, if they don't come out to vote in numbers somewhat comparable to those in 2018, it's going to be very difficult for Democrats to hold the House, of course, and also probably the Senate. So I think uh, looking at at how young voters are coming out to vote in primaries uh, is is a key indicator, I think, of how they're probably going to vote in the fall. Claudia, how much do we know about the party's midterm messaging right now? So you could say that the messaging in some ways is all over the board. Uh, Democrats have tried to uh, be disciplined on that message, but they still have not nailed down exactly what that message is. We're hearing a lot of Folks, for example, pitching the accomplishments they made. That's one area of focus that they're looking at, for example, the bipartisan infrastructure package. So trying to highlight everything they did accomplish. At the same time, we're seeing Democrats kind of argue about the things they did not get done and highlighting, for example, another form of that infrastructure plan that did not get out of Congress, the Build Back Better plan that progressives were pushing. And so we're seeing a little bit of mixed messaging, if you will, among Democrats, and they haven't quite landed on a single message that they want to sell to voters. Michael, historically, when have Democrats landed on that that consistent, clear message and made it work for them? Well, they certainly did in the New Deal. Uh, They were very lucky, of course, in the 1930s, because they were running against Republicans who were blamed uh, for causing the Great Depression, or at least uh, not uh, making it better for people. And uh, they also had in in the mid-1960s the Great Society Program, uh, which included uh, the Civil Rights Bill, the Voting Rights Act, but also aid to education, Medicare, uh, some of the first important steps to uh, improve the environment. So, you know, the Democrats are perceived, Democrats have been for a long time perceived as a party of government. And when the government is perceived as doing things for ordinary people, the Democrats look good. Claudia, where does the economy rank right now as a voter priority? This is a major priority for the voters out there. And in some ways, this is what is reflected in the frustration that we're hearing from voters is they do wish the economy was in a better place. And they are seeing that inflation hit their pocketbooks, the higher gasoline prices, the higher prices for grocery store purchases. And so this is playing a big role, even as the job market 
market is roaring back after the pandemic. We're seeing all this growth there. Voters are still frustrated with where the economy is today. Michael, later we'll talk about what the past can tell us about the Democrats' political future. But the upcoming elections are coming off the back of the Capitol insurrection. And after whatever we'll learn from the January 6th hearings in June, to what extent did that put us into sort of unknown political territory? Well, it is difficult to tell, you know. Uh, the problem, of course, for Democrats, it's a good thing, not a really problem, but uh, is that Donald Trump's no longer president. So I think a lot of people out there, and Claudia knows better than I do about this because she's reporting on it, uh, think, well, yes, Trump might have been terrible. and What he did was awful. He tried to um, you know, win the election he actually had lost. Um, but he's not president anymore. And so uh, this is all worth, you know, hearing about, listening to, and we'll see how many people actually watch and listen to the hearings uh, starting Thursday night. But I think, you know, really what matters is what's going on right now. And uh, and so a Democrat certainly uh, care a lot about uh, the threat to democracy and pushed a, uh, a voting reform bill, which of course, not, which passed the House and knocked it through the Senate. But the problem is this is in the past. And the president, as Claudia said, people are worried about high prices. Um, and also, I think there's still a holdover from the pandemic. People are still insecure, I think, about the economy, even though, aside from inflation, the economy is doing quite well. Claudia, weigh in here. Yeah, so it's interesting in terms of all of the work this January 6th Select Committee is doing to put on these hearings. We're expecting at least a half a dozen hearings this month, starting with one at primetime on Thursday. They are hoping to reach Americans who are not paying as much attention, who may not care about January 6th. But when we look at reports, for example, NBC put out a poll today that showed that a less than a majority see the former president as responsible for the January 6th attack, when this is exactly the opposite of what the committee's been trying to tell the public, it's going to be a huge challenge for them to get this messaging across about Trump's role, how significant it was, and that of other Republicans, for example. It's possible they're going to make this huge attempt and they will not connect with folks who are still not paying attention. We got this tweet from Generalissimo who says, I am pessimistic over the future of the Democratic Party. Even if they manage to respond to the continuing mass shooting crisis, they have an image of being a no-action or status quo administration. If they cannot break this image, they are doomed to lose lose seats. And Mike tweeted, I wish you folks would stop saying that the Democrats have control of the Senate. They may have the majority, but they don't have control as long as they need 60 votes to get anything done. And Claudia, just briefly comment on just the dynamics in Congress right now and and how that's made it difficult for President Biden to move his agenda forward. Right. The dynamics are, are very tense, very uh, both sides are entrenched in their partisan uh, viewpoint. And so they're having a lot of difficulty reaching bipartisan agreements, especially on significant issues like we, we have seen this past week when it comes to gun control or, or reforms, when it comes to access to weapons. And they're struggling to reach a significant deal. It looks like it's a narrow deal they could reach, if anything. So it's one of many examples of Biden's frustrations of getting through major legislation through this Congress. Uh, Many liberals want Democrats to double down on progressive policies, but for Democratic candidates in red or purple territory, that's a lot easier said than done. So let's check in with one of them. Rachel Baker is seeking her party's nomination to take on her Republican state representative in Ohio's 27th district, which is northeast of Cincinnati. Rachel, thanks for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. We're also speaking to NPR's Claudia Grisales and Michael Kazin, political history professor at Georgetown. Rachel, what kind of political headwinds are you facing as a Democratic candidate in Ohio? Yeah, I am definitely in one of these purple districts. Um, We've been a very red district until some um, redistricting maps have made us purple. So um, it was really interesting to listen to your first speakers and to think at a national level what the messaging needs to be. I think I have it a little easier um, because I'm really looking at a local level, less philosophically and more connecting with our voters and letting people see that, you know, we're really the party of the people and representing the true community at the state house. What issues are top of mind for the voters you're speaking to? I would say the biggest issues. I'm in a suburb um, of Cincinnati, and I think a lot of our big issues are um, the recent attack on public education. We're seeing a lot of this um, national extremism now creeping in and actually impacting our students and our teachers. Um, So I think that's a huge one. Definitely um, common sense gun regulations. Um, The majority of our voters support that. However, in Ohio, we are passing um, laws that decrease regulation on gun ownership, which is in contrast to the majority of our, our community members. So we're really having a conflict between how community feels and how our government is acting. So we've heard from lots of listeners who say they think Democrats are playing it too safe, that progressives are pushing for bolder policies on climate and racial justice and student loan forgiveness. But you said you're in a a purple district. So do you feel like you have the option to push for more progressive policies? Um. I think I think something really important that I've been working through because we were a very red district until we just became purple. So I think that we, you know, need to stay true to our core values while at the same time not losing progress or um, the ability to impact change by by some ideal. Um, So I'm really playing with the core values of Democrats the government, the economy should be working for all of us. Um, everyone should have the free freedom to be their authentic self. We value diversity and thought. And um, and also looking at what this, the makeup, our um, state house is in a super majority Republican. So what is possible? You know, and I don't want to lose a little progress for some perfection. I want progress over perfection. (laughs) That's Rachel Baker. She's a Democrat running in the primary for Ohio State Representative in Ohio's 27th District. Rachel, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. Claudia, what did you take away from what we heard from Rachel there? I think that's a very great example of what Democrats are struggling with, especially in a purple district such as the one that Rachel Baker is hoping to get elected in. Because you do have progressives out there, you have the more left-wing side of the Democratic Party pushing for some of these marquee 
pieces of sweeping legislation that they're pushing for, such as Medicare for all. And that's going to be a difficult argument for someone in a purple district in Ohio to sell to their voters. And one complaint, for example, that reminds me, I heard from two progressive members in the House. This is Ro Khanna of California and Jamie Raskin of Maryland. They're working together to try and address kind of this messaging that if you're not for Medicare for all, then you must be evil. So trying to go directly there and hear other people's viewpoints on Medicare for all, maybe they're not for it, but that doesn't mean they're not a Democrat. So that's something people like Rachel Baker have to deal with to get across the finish line if they wish in a purple district. It's easy to get fixated by the national picture, but any healthy political movement needs good local roots. I'm curious to hear from both of you how you describe the health of the Democratic Party at the local level. Michael, I'll come to you first. Well, it depends where you're talking about. We're a big country, complicated country. And certainly in D.C., where I live, <laughs> there's hardly any Republicans at all. I think uh, Donald Trump got 6 percent of the vote in 2020. And there's a very lively uh, primary campaign uh, for mayor, for various uh, city council seats, for district attorney. So uh, D.C. Democrats are doing quite well. And that's true pretty much in many blue districts as well, because where you have a, where either you're in power or you have a chance to be in power, um, people feel, feel empowered. And uh, they are they are quite willing and uh, eager to get involved in local politics. The problem, of course, is in districts like uh, Rachel's, perhaps um, uh, suburb of Cincinnati. I don't know you know the district uh, very well, but um, you know Democrats used to have these very powerful local organizations uh, in New York City, but also in a lot of uh, rural places as well. Um, and those organizations have often atrophied, partly because of social media, uh, partly because of uh, cynicism more generally. Uh, and that's one thing which they need to build back, I think. They need to have uh, somewhere which people can, can gather and ways in which they can uh, talk about politics and then go out there and get enthused about working in campaigns. Um, because organization is crucial in politics. It's not just about messaging coming from social media. Um, it's also about talking to people uh, you know, um, neighbors and uh, people you work with about politics. And that uh, is about organization. Well, let's get to some more of your messages. Tina from Missouri. Kim, I live in the panhandle of Florida. My name is Ash from Silver Spring, Maryland. I am a reluctant Democrat. I'm tired of the demonizing and negativism, which encourages violence, I believe. Let's focus on solutions and accurately report what works and doesn't work without blame. I've been a registered Republican my entire life, but I have voted Democrat for the last five years. I live in a, an incredibly conservative area, and I had to make sure that I was included in activities that could promote values and morals that I support. I see zero pathway to power for the Democratic Party. They have failed to communicate in any meaningful way to the American people, and this message comes from a lifelong Democrat. There is a supermajority of Americans in red and blue states that agree on a major set of issues like empowering American workers to earn a living, have a roof over their heads, be able to have health insurance, and retire. Let's empower that Okay, so big question for both of you. Right now, how well do you think our politicians reflect where the country really is politically? I'll come to you first, Claudia. 
I think you can look at the abortion issue as a classic example of the country, the the vast majority of the country being for access to this kind of medical care. But we're on the verge, if, if you see with the Supreme Court uh, issuing from this, this leaked uh, opinion, issuing an opinion that would end Roe v. Wade protections. And so we look to the Senate after that to see, well, what's their reaction? The majority of the country is not for such a dramatic shift in this kind of care. And we're seeing the Senate in gridlock. Republicans are fiercely opposed to intervening and trying to stop uh, this opinion from going forward by looking at legislation that would codify these kind of rights for women. And so Congress in many ways, and this this leads to some of the apathy we see out there when voters do not participate, is out of step with a lot of the country, the majority of the country on that and many issues. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Now let's get back to today's conversation. One of you tweeted this, how can Democrats expect voters to be energized when Republicans gave them the do-nothing Democrats nickname? Everything dies on the Senate floor. Democrats need to stop with the big sweeping bills and focus on smaller bills. But Claudia, just remind us of the dynamics in the Senate right now, not just in terms of the 50-50 split, but the dynamics within the party itself. Right. There is a split even within the party itself. When we look at some of the more moderate Democrats, it's some folks even get mad that they're called Democrats. This is Joe Manchin of West Virginia or Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. And it, oftentimes we'll see them perhaps pull away from Democrats when it comes to some of these major initiatives, voter rights, for example. They struggle to reach a plan on addressing the potential of Roe v. Wade being overturned, and also even gun legislation, gun gun access. And that's another issue that is harder to pin down Manchin, for example, and get Democrats on the same page. So yeah, Democrats, even within their own party, with that very bare bones majority that they have in the Senate, continue to see struggles even to be on the same page. But realistically, we have to say, that it's it's not as if there's been a big push for bipartisanship in, in the Senate during this session or in recent history. It's not as if Republicans are really reaching across the aisle to try to find these agreements, right? Right. And as, as far as Democrats would see it, they would say no. Republicans would argue, yes, we've reached ac- across the aisle multiple times on multiple plans. But Democrats will argue you're not going far enough. We're seeing this play out in a way when it comes to gun access, uh, when it comes to trying to address the recent shootings, mass shootings. And Republicans are saying we can do a deal here, but it's going to be very narrow, much more limited than you Democrats want. And we're seeing lead negotiators such as Chris Murphy out of Connecticut say, okay, let's go for it. So sometimes it does play out. Republicans will argue they are going for bipartisan work, but many Democrats will say you're not going far enough. Michael, let's turn to your book for a moment. Tell us what it took for Democrats to win historically. Well, what I argue in the book, um, Jen, is that Democrats do best when they have a message and policies to match, which uh, push really 
what I call moral capitalism. That is uh, 19th century opposing the power of big business and big banks and Wall Street in the 20th century, much more supporting uh, working people and their needs, both at the workplace and in society more generally. And, uh, you know, what it takes to win is you win a majority, of course. And that means you have to put together people of different religions, different races, different regions behind uh, programs which will help all of them in different ways. And that's what the New Deal did. That's what, uh, to a degree, the Great Society did. And Democrats really haven't had that uh, for the last 50 years. Uh, they've, they've held their own in many ways about different issues, um, about uh, racial issues, about gender issues, um, environmental issues, but uh, they have not had this sort of overarching economic uh, message with proposals to match. Um, and part of the problem there is because unions have, have, have declined. Uh, unions were so important in the New Deal and afterwards in pushing a message of economic equality uh, for those Americans who were in it and also those Americans who wanted to be in unions. And they've, the union movement has been declining, as you know, for the last really 40, 50 years. And that um, has been a real problem for grassroots Democrats pushing that message of economic economic equality. And Claudia, we did see President Biden make some moves in this area. Right, exactly. We are seeing the president trying to have an impact here. But again, he is struggling against these low poll um, approval ratings. And that is working against him, even as he tries to push this message along. It, It continues to be a struggle, even just barely months before these midterm elections. Claudia, I want to ask you specifically a media question right now when it comes to to really either party and and the way media is splintered and and you can really exist within this within this bubble universe where you're not hearing from one party or the other at all. Right, that is something that is really really apparent now in terms of Uh, voters being able to go to their media outlet of choice to get the news that they want to hear. They don't want to hear news that doesn't fit into their paradigm, if you will. I had a colleague, Susan Davis, at NPR, also on our Capitol Hill team, who reported on the dramatic decrease in swing districts. Americans are just living in pockets where they're around people just like them, who think just like them. And so they're creating these bubbles physically in terms of who they're they're talking to and who they're listening to. And we're seeing that play out when it comes to fewer swing districts today than years ago when it comes to competitiveness between the two parties and, and potentially seeing a district go either way. And Michael, how dramatic of a, of a shift is that for the country when you look at it through a historical lens? I think that's, we tend to be a little romantic about media, that there was this time when most Americans watched the same TV shows. And of course, there used to be, you know, three big networks and people watched Walter Cronkite or Huntley and Brinkley, at least a lot of people did. Um, I'm dating myself there. <laughs> uh, I used to watch them when I was a kid. But, um, you know, really late 19th century, which is where closely divided parties, the Gilded Age, uh, you had a very partisan press on both sides. Uh, there was no radio and television or social media, of course, but you still have newspapers out there called Democrat and Republican. Because um, uh, newspapers back late 19th century, for example, used to be solidly partisan on one side or the other. They cheered uh, unambiguously for one party or another, just as Fox News does on one side and perhaps MSNBC does on the other today. Um, uh, but the sorting geographically, uh, 
that Claudia mentions, that is is, uh, is is somewhat new, I think. Uh, you used to have people, you know, living around one another, fighting about politics, even though they didn't agree. Um, and now it's, as you say, very easy to just uh, sit on your laptop or your phone and uh, um, and follow uh, people on your side and uh, not even think about the other people on the other side, which that, that is a problem, I think. I want to turn back to... Uh, this issue of voter apathy. A recent Quinnipiac poll found Biden's approval rate with young voters has dropped to just 27 percent. Michael, historically, how have the Democrats fared with young people and how could any political party inspire younger voters to care? Well, of course, we only had the 18-year-old vote since the early 1970s. But generally, uh, when Democrats were more progressive, uh, they got more young people on their side. Uh, that wasn't always true. 1980s, for example, Ronald Reagan had a uh, plurality of young voters uh, supporting him because he seemed to be the exciting, new, innovative uh, politician. Um, but, you know, all voters want the government to do things for them. And Democrats are perceived as failed, having failed to do that. We've talked about why they, uh, for the most part, failed to do that, with some exceptions, um, because of the close um, uh, margins that they have and because of the, the fierce partisanship, which won't allow one party to help the other party uh, pass anything. But, you know, y- young people um, don't have histories of voting usually. Uh, and and so, you know, they often think it's, it's, it's sort of an optional thing. Uh, and that, that that's always a problem. Once you voted a lot um, um, and you're used to voting, then it's a habit and you tend to, whether you care or not uh, about particular candidate in your district, you tend to vote anyway. And that's not true for young people. It's a habit which they have to learn. Let's turn to another group. Uh, Support for President Biden is dropping among Black Americans, Claudia. It's a group that arguably put him in office. Roughly 9 in 10 Black Americans supported Biden in 2020, but about 7 in 10 approve of his current job performance. And that's according to a Washington Post-Ipsos poll from last week. Are we seeing similar cooling of support for the party at large with this group? When it comes to Democrats, that is possible that this is just a signal of something of larger concern for Democrats, that they're struggling to reach uh, African-Americans and this also Latinos. We're seeing this uh, with that group as well in terms of frustration when it comes to reform, when it comes to immigration, for example. And so we're seeing perhaps signs here that maybe this is a broader disappointment with the overall party, but really we need to see it play out to be sure that it extends beyond Biden and more to the party itself. Well, let's turn to DNC Chair Jamie Harrison here talking about whether it's enough for Joe Biden to not be Donald Trump. It was enough to motivate 81 million people, the most that have ever voted for a candidate for the United States in 2020. And I believe that fundamentally, as Joe Biden goes all around this country, he knows the struggles firsthand because he's experienced the pain that many folks are experiencing. I think that will be enough because the contrast is a real one, that you have another party on the other side that don't understand the American people, that aren't fighting for the American people. They're just fighting for their own power. Claudia, from what you've learned from your sources and your reporting, is he Correct. Will that dichotomy between Democrats and Republicans be enough to get blue voters to the polls? You know, that would be what Democrats would hope to be the case. I I think that is optimistic in some ways. 
we we do see when it comes to these primaries that these candidates are focused on winning out that primary. That seems to be where all of the competition comes in, that they are focused on winning. But in terms of Democrats and having the upper hand in that situation, that may not be the case. We'll see the midterms answer that question ultimately, at least for this year. But right now, that may not be the case. Michael, when you think about your research and and the history of the Democratic Party, is there a key historical lesson you think Dems should look to right now? Well, as I said before, I think they have to have a message and policies to match, which can help the majority of Americans. I mean, that sounds simple, <laughs> even banal, but it's certainly true. And that's that was the great tragedy of the Build Back Better plan not passing, because uh, everything in that bill was was pretty much popular, as I mentioned. Universal pre-kindergarten, paid family leave, Medicare expansion, um, negotiating uh, with drug makers to get the price of prescription drugs down. All of that was very popular. And I think, you know, Democrats really, you know, got to start running against uh, what Harry Truman called the do-nothing Republican Congress. But that will only be possible, unfortunately, if, if the Democrats lose control of Congress. But I think if they do, which looks likely right now, in 2024, Biden or some other Democratic uh, nominee for president will will do that uh, because Republicans, they can argue, I think, uh, realistically, credibly, uh, don't really do, want to do a lot you know, for ordinary Americans, which Democrats do, but Democrats right now are failing to do a lot for ordinary Americans, except, of course, you know, the job picture is very good. That's Michael Kazin. He's author of What It Took to Win, The History of the Democratic Party. He's also a professor of history at Georgetown University. Also with us today, Claudia Grisales, an NPR congressional correspondent. Michael, Claudia, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Rupert Allman with help from Catherine Fink and Avery Kleinman. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.